Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, as we once again begin our study of the church's social teaching, we ask the help of your Holy Spirit with the Spirit's gifts of wisdom, knowledge, understanding, so that we may see and be able to better appreciate the, the richness of the beauty of the truth of these teachings that have been have their foundation in the gospel and in scripture and also in the teaching of our our popes over the past century we ask this all through christ our lord and with the special intercession of saint john paul ii whose feast day we just celebrated a couple of days ago who wrote that beautiful encyclical on the 100th anniversary uh, which we are studying in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, remember last week we left off uh, of the sheet of study sheets I gave you. Uh, basic principles of the church's social teaching. Okay. You can pick up do I have uh, I have one. I handed these out last week. Did anyone not get one? Candy wasn't here. Oh, shit. Sorry. Sorry. I made a couple extras. Just to, to briefly review from page one, I'll just summarize this quickly. Um, Principles. The first kind of a preliminary truth that the church, founded by Christ to provide light to the world, is uh, endowed with a teaching authority to guide peoples and nations on these questions of uh, social, economic importance. Okay. Um, second, that the church recognizes the dignity and the value of the human person made in God's image and likeness. The individual does not exist for the state. Okay. The state exists for the individual. The individual is primary, and this is the reverse of, of atheistic communism, where you know, the, the individual is just a cog in the wheel and indispensable in making the socialist order. That's why Stalin could say when he was uh, nationalizing the farms in Ukraine and the farmers rebelled, he starved 10 million of them and said, oh, takes got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. They were achieving the socialist state. And um, the corollary of that is the primacy of the family, which the church recognizes. Uh, the family is the, the basic fundamental unit in society, and the society uh, began to exist because of, of families. Uh, and the third fundamental principle we're going to we started last week we'll, we'll pick up with that again is the common good um, and uh, I'll, I'll turn to um, page two now because the common good when we speak of the common good it includes various factors um, different 
branches or organizations of the state's power, um, juridical system, the legal system, protection of the environment, essential services to all, also basic human rights that, that uh, the state should be assuring, okay, food, housing, work, education, uh, access to culture, transportation, basic health care, and I'll just, I'll just stop briefly right there because um, the church has always taught that socialism is not is not an appropriate remedy for for the problems that people face. And um, I don't know if you've been reading in the paper. I've been keeping these articles, which are printed in the Kenosha News, which is more on the, the liberal side. But uh, I only brought a couple recent ones with me. One is from August 20th. This one's from Tuesday, today, okay. Obamacare on the brink, okay. Um, three large insurers from this state alone have, have pulled out of the, uh, the Obamacare uh, industry, you could say. Aetna, United Healthcare, Humana. It says, um, as choices diminish, premiums soar, they're likely to rise by an average of 25% next year. And today's, this was, what page is this, A10, Obamacare premiums to soar. I mean, it's, it's we had the best healthcare system in the world, and and um, it's, it's well, uh, been muddled up, you would say, uh, trying to, you know, nationalize it. There are good ends, but you have to use a, a good means to, uh, to to achieve an end. And uh, I think the crumbling of the system shows that the assumptions that it was based upon were, were faulty. But I, I don't want to go off on that in depth. I just thought I would mention it because it is um, you know, something that the church cares about. I mean, basic health care, we try to provide that for people. But uh, the way to do it is not just to socialized medicine, basically. Okay. Other factors which make up the common good, freedom of communication, uh, freedom of religion. You know, our, I mentioned last week our, our Constitution, our founders, you know, had the insight to acknowledge these, uh, First Amendment to the Constitution, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of association, so on and so forth. Um, and I, I, we just, I, I brought it with me this week. This is the compendium of the church's social doctrine. It's a very good value. Um, you, it's published by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, it's put together by the Vatican. And it's got an excellent index. You can look up you know, different topics. And uh, it's kind of like a catechism on the church's social doctrine. And I quote that here, um, the common good involves all the members of society. No one is exempt from cooperating, each according to one's possibilities, attaining, developing it. Uh, we're all in this together. We should be promoting the common good. Um, and a few lines down, the state has the duty of watching over the common good 
ensuring every sector of social life, not, ex not excluding the economic one. Uh, the church's social teaching is, is really opposed to the totally laissez-faire um, view of economics so that the government shouldn't be involved in anything. It, it just is, is let to run, it'll run perfectly by itself. No, I mean, uh, Goldman Sachs doesn't even believe this, okay? And the bankers of Wall Street, because we bailed them out, the taxpayers, okay? So on the one hand, the, the, these people say, oh, the, the free market, the free market, but then, oh, when, when they go bottom up, oh, help us out. Okay? Yeah. So, uh, well, more than the big bankers, you know, there are, there are people in need that need a safety net, so, and, and the state has to oversee that people don't open. Private corporations, bankers, whatever, don't overstep their boundaries. Um, and that, that next line I, I put in, in italics, the common good is the reason that political authority exists. Now, we're electing people to government office in order that they can promote and help to oversee and guarantee the common good for society. I think, I think a, a lot of you know, politicians or whatever, they kind of implicitly realize this I mean, when they're talking about how to make things better for, for people, uh, but they don't, I've never heard that term used. Have any of you? Heard uh, someone running for political office speak of the common good? I, I'm just not aware of that. Um, and, and this is something that that uh, you know goes back for just you know millennia. I think, I think Plato, Aristotle talked about the common good. Maybe they didn't use that term, but I, I'm pretty sure they did. Um, and then I quote here at length from Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. His 2009 encyclical, uh, Caritas in Veritate, Charity in Love, okay? or pardon me, in Truth, Charity in Truth. And um, he offered a, a beautiful reflection on the common good. And uh, a few lines down, he, he speaks of how it is the good of all of us, individuals, families, and immediate groups, together constitute society, uh, a good that's not sought for its own sake, but for the people who belong to the social community, to desire the common good, strive toward it as a requirement of justice and charity, and to take a stand for the common good is on the one hand to be solicitous for, and on the other hand avail oneself of the complex institutions that give rise to the structure, give structure to, to life and society, juridically, civilly, politically, culturally, making it a polis or the city, okay? uh, a place to, to, are the doors locked up there? No, okay. someone came in and I'll follow them. Are they coming down? No, they went back up. Apparently it wasn't a terrorist who came. Okay. You know, I'll say with, with this encyclical, Pope Benedict tried to 
And Jeff, the idea of charity, and more so, he, he emphasized charity in, in, along with trying to attain a just social order, okay? That's why he says, in the middle there, halfway over the page, the more we strive to secure a common good corresponding to the real needs of our neighbors, the more effectively we love them. Every Christian's call to practice is charity, corresponding to his vocation, according to the degree of influence one wields in the polis. And this is the institutional path, political path of charity, no less excellent, effective than the kind of charity which encounters the neighbor directly. Um, Pope Francis has called for that too, for, for nations to try to practice charity towards other nations. And um, I'll just quote from the, about five lines up, starting on the right, man's earthly activity, when inspired and sustained by charity, contributes to the building of the universal city of God, which is the goal of the history of the human family. In an increasingly globalized society, okay, in, in one sense we're, we're much smaller because of you know, the ability to communicate and uh, more closely knit with other peoples, the common good and the effort to obtain it cannot fail to assume the dimensions of the whole human family, this community of peoples and nations shape the earthly city in unity and peace. And later in that encyclical, he calls for international cooperation to achieve economic and human development. So the, the popes recently have, actually this is going back to uh, Pope Paul VI, even John XXIII, you know, they recognize this global aspect of things. And so, um, you know, in addition to the state, you know, trying to promote the common good, that nation states, should try to cooperate with each other to bring about a, co a common good amongst all of humanity. And that, that just sounds like a very good and worthy goal to pursue. And uh, Pope Benedict says, economic activity cannot solve all social problems through the simple application of commercial logic. Oftentimes, I think that's what we see on the international level, globally. I mean, all people seem to talk about is trade, you know, making money and, and you know, these, these types of uh, deals that are made between nations and states. Um, it has to go beyond that, he says. He, said, and he says this needs to be directed towards the pursuit of the common good, um, for which the political community in particular must take responsibility. Development is impossible without upright men and women. Too bad our, our two people running for president are, are, not, the, are not the best models of, of um, upright people. Okay? Without financiers and politicians whose consciences are finely attuned to the requirements of the common good, okay? you can't be, be attaining this end. You have to have good, good people of leadership. And um, he goes on to say there cannot be holistic development and universal common good unless people's spiritual 
and moral welfare is taken into account. Uh, and that's something I think we never hear of. You know. what, what person running for office speaks of spiritual and moral welfare of people? No, I mean, that's kind of off the radar screen for people, and, and that's what people should care about, because I think it was, uh, wasn't it Benjamin Franklin, right, right after the, the uh, Constitution was passed, you know, he, he made this statement, well, we've given the people of America you know, a constitution. Uh, it will take a moral people to, to hold this thing together. Because if, if people become immoral themselves, then um, you know, the whole thing will fall apart. And um, well, that's maybe what we're seeing on, on a large scale. Uh, the next quote here is, quote from Jude Doherty, who was the head of the philosophy department at Catholic University of America, one of the premier philosophical institutions in the country. He's just brilliant, uh, Professor Doherty. I read him all the time. Does anyone get the Wanderer newspaper? Jude Doherty writes in there all the time. He's writing book reviews and commentaries on things. He's just, he's really a, a terrific uh, intellect. And he says here, uh, kind of following up what I just talking about, in the absence of a common cultural outlook, can one appeal to the common good as a normative principle? See, this is one of the problems we run into when we, when we encounter Islam, because it's, it's something totally different. I mean, uh, for Islam, the, the religious power is the state. And, you know, it's Sharia law. So, you have to realize this when you're dealing with Muslims, um, that you know, their, their approach, their whole cultural outlook is totally different than ours. Um, but Jude Doherty isn't just talking about Muslims here. He's talking about our culture uh, in general, I think, how it's, it's lost its, its fabric that you know, held us together. That's why he poses this question, you know, without, without, without a common cultural outlook, can what appeal to the common good as, as a normative principle, okay? Um, it's a rhetorical question. He says, an appeal to the common good or to social justice presupposes a cohesive view of human nature and of man's natural end. If there was once an American consensus regarding what the Founding Fathers knew and meant by liberty, law, and by God, that consensus no longer prevails. It's not there, it's not out there. I mean, if we're, if we're honest, we look around, that's, that's gone, uh, not totally, okay. We're much better than Europe, I'll say that. Europe is, is much more way out, kind of lost their, their moral footing uh, than us. But uh, it's, it is a problem. You know, to promote the common good, you have to have a common cultural outlook. And if that's gone as to what is uh, basic morality and things, it's really a problem to, to attain the common kind of good, because how do you even talk about it if people are, you know, uh, if, if, you know, like in our country, 60% of people think that two, two people can marry. I mean, they're, they're lost. I mean, it's just, you know, you're, uh, to, to talk about the common good, which is rooted in the family, okay, that, that's one of the basic principles I, I dealt with, well, we're, we're really at coming at this from you know, 
opposite ends or different worldviews, you could say. Uh, anyway, to leave off the common good, okay, that's, I spend a lot of time on that because it's such an important principle. Okay? Uh, the next basic principle I talk about is something that I don't think many Catholics have ever heard of, or people in general. Okay? Um, it was something even the ancient philosophers, I think, had, had kind of a sense of, but not really, it's more of a, a Judeo-Christian principle. It's the universal destination of goods. And here, I'm, this is a quote from Gaudium et Spes, which is uh, hope and, and, and uh, joy and hope. It's, it's a document of the Second Vatican Council. Okay? Among the numerous implications of the common good, immediate significance is taken on why the principle of the universal destination of goods. God destined the earth and all for all men and all peoples so that all created things would be shared fairly by all mankind under the guidance of justice tempered by charity. That follows up nicely what I was just talking about. Pope Benedict you know, was kind of expounding this idea and the concern for all peoples. But um, uh, this principle, I go on to say, is based on the fact that the original source of all that is good is the very act of God who created the earth and man, who gave the earth to man so that he might have dominion over it by his work and enjoy its fruits. Going Genesis there, okay. God gave the earth to the whole human race for the sustenance of all its members without excluding or favoring anyone. C.A. means uh, Sentesimus Anus, that's Pope's uh, 100th anniversary encyclical. The human race, pardon me, the human person cannot do without material goods that correspond to his primary needs and constitute the basic conditions for its existence, okay? Uh, so, the, um, the idea here is that God created the earth and all the, all the goods in it for, for everyone. So, you know, one nation, for example, can't go into another nation and just extract all their natural resources and say, well, this is for us. Um, actually, I, there's a document, I think it was called, um, this was written back in the 70s. It was, it was under lock and key, but the Freedom of Information Act has, has let loose. It's called Global 2000 or something like this, if I recall. And um, uh, Henry Kissinger, remember Henry Kissinger, you know, the, yeah. our German Secretary of State, or Austria, was he German or Austrian or something? German. He was what? German. German, okay. Uh, he and, and Nixon and a number of other people put together this document that was acknowledging that, um, you know, the world's resources were limited. And, uh, and that the third world population if they continue to grow, would be a threat to our economic well-being. Okay. Because we wouldn't have all these you know, natural resources to draw upon from other nations. So what was the solution to limit their population? To go in and, and uh, not really the abortion, abortion wasn't really accepted at, at that time, but it was the idea that 
you know, give them contraception, and it, it became abortion too, eventually, yeah. Um, that we have to keep these populations of these third world nations down so that, uh, you know, they won't be a threat to our well-being. Well, this is totally against, you know, this, this idea of having concern for every people, every nation, you know, that there's a worldwide community of, of human beings, and no, this is, this is just, uh, I'd say it's evil. But this was our governmental policy. It still is, by the way. Okay. I mean, to, uh, the African bishops and the South American bishops always complain that all they seem to get from the United States in the, in the way of aid is condoms and birth control pills. And, and now we see forced sterilizations. Those go, went on in, in uh, Peru for many years. The communist government in China uh, does this too. But, uh, The, the corollary to the universal destination of goods, that God made the earth, all that is in it for the whole human race, okay, is that okay, uh, there is a natural God-given right to own property. And this is something that Pope Leo XIII emphasized in his encyclical uh, Rerum Divarum back in 1891 uh, to counter the Marxist idea socialist and, and communist idea that you know, private ownership of property is, is a no-no. Okay? Everyone holds property in common and, and we'll just be one big happy family if everyone owns things collectively. Nonsense, okay, that, that goes against human nature, okay? And Pope Leo XIII recognized this. And um, uh, John Paul II in Sentation Misanus, this is the quote here in italics, by means of work, and making use of the gift of intelligence, okay, people are able to exercise dominion over the earth and make it a fitting home. In this way, man makes part of the earth his own, precisely the part which he has acquired through his work. This is the origin of individual property. Okay? You go out and work, okay? you, you can either buy property or you, you make something, you go out and you work the land, it's yours, okay? The right to private property is, is it's a natural, God-given right. And <clears throat> I say here, private property and other forms of private ownership of goods ought to be considered, actually this is a compendium, it's not me, okay, uh, ought to be considered an extension of human freedom, stimulating exercise of responsibility that constitutes one of the conditions for civil liberty. I mean, our, our, our Constitution recognizes this. You know, the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and, and property, actually, is what is in the, the Fifth uh, Amendment to the Constitution. We have a right to property. Uh, human, our reason, you know, tells us this. You know, it's, it's counterintuitive that everyone's going to own property collectively, because this is why the, the farms under communism all failed. Why communism, as, as an economic system, Fail because it's based upon this false assumption of the human being that oh, we're all going to just share things and own things in common. Nonsense. No. Okay. You have no incentive to work, to make, to really, you know, do better. Because if I'm just going to go out and put in my hours because I'm not getting anything out of it. I mean, work and and ownership of private property—they're linked together. 
people work harder, they do better. And this is why it's wrong for the poor to envy. The poor who are lazy, especially, we're talking about here. I mean, some are destitute, they can't help themselves, but, but even they should not envy. But, you know, the lazy people who, you know, someone works hard and, and makes a living, well, you have, you, you owe me, you know, give me some of your money. Nonsense, okay? St. Paul says, he who will not work should not eat. Yeah? And, uh, anyway, um, in the next paragraph, I say, however, okay, the, the natural God given the right to property, and the idea it's linked with work, and you work, you can own property, okay, it's not absolute. Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute and untouchable. On the contrary, this is from the compendium, okay, it is always understood this right within the broader context of the right to, of the right common to all to use the goods of the whole of creation. The right to private property is subordinated to the right to common use, to the fact that goods are meant for everyone. Okay, this is the idea that you can't hoard things, one individual, okay? And, um, um, you know, there is, there's something in, in the law, for example, um, that, that kind of recognizes this. If you are a farmer and you, know, you you own all this acreage, and um, you know there's there's a nearby city, and they need to put up uh, uh, electrical wires, and to go around your property would, would cost just you know an enormous amount of money, and uh, say especially if you had all these farmers you know uh, owning land on the outskirts, well you need to you need to cut through the land and put in power lines to benefit all these other people, to promote, you could say, the common good. Okay. Uh, the state has the right to come in and say, we're gonna do this. You have a right to be compensated fairly for, for you know, our use of your property, but okay, we're coming in, we're taking some of your land, we're gonna put up power lines because the, the common good justifies this. Isn't this reasonable? Yes. Now, where it's unreasonable, I saw a couple years ago, I remember seeing a program in Florida. Well, it was a city down in Florida somewhere, maybe it was um, Miami or something, or one of these vacation spots, where people had lived along the oceanfront for many years. And, you know, some mayor or governor, whoever it was, I forget, some political, comes in and thinks, well, we can develop this lakefront property and make a lot of money off of it. So we're going to go in and and claim eminent domain, that's the actual legal term that, that uh, the state will use, okay? okay? We're gonna give you compensation for your for your, your property, but we're taking it. And that went to court. It's like, no, you, the state just can't come in because, oh, this is a good source of income for us. So to kick you off your property, which you've been on for, you know, 100 years, we're gonna buy up all your property to, to make, you know, shopping centers and, and health spots, okay? Because, Who's getting a cut out of this? Okay, someone's getting a cut out of this. You know this. Yeah. So you can't do that. That's that's unjust. But the, the idea of eminent domain, that you know the state needs some land and you can't you can't be you know, stingy with it and say you know you can't step on my property. Well, no. You know we need an egress here. We need uh, you know to, to benefit other people and and you know for, or for a road or whatever it may be. So uh, that's just one example of 
of there is a, a reasonable limit to the uh, ownership of private property. And, uh, and then I, I quote here from John Paul II's 1981 encyclical, Labor of Exertions, it's on, on human work. It's, it's marvelous if you want to read a great encyclical, just look that up. It's really uh, magnificent. And in that he says, um, actually that's what I was quoting here. Oh the, oh, the compendium was quoting John Paul II. That's it, yeah. And um, as I say, in all these, in other words, all things belong to God. God allows us to use property for our, for our benefit. And that's really how we have to look at it. Anything we own, we don't own absolutely. It's, it's God who's the creator of everything. Mm -hmm. God is allowing us to use things of the earth for our benefit. And that's the idea that we have to be good stewards of what we, we do. And it's not just for us and to gain more wealth for me, but we have to have concern about others. Okay? And, um, Private use of property is subordinated to the universal disposition of property, its use and benefit for all the people, the common good, and we must be good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. And I mentioned, you know, the, uh, the just the example of the easement and access, you know, uh, for power lines. Okay. Uh, well, the the next basic principle of Church's social teaching, very important, the principle of solidarity. Okay? Now that term solidarity should bring, uh, bring up a memory of something. Polish. Solidarity movement, okay? And uh, actually the term predates that. I don't know if, if Lepolenza uh, took this from the Church's social teaching or whatever. By the way, I, I not to burst anyone's bubble, but uh, I have a Polish family in, in the parish at Mount Carmel, and uh, I, I was over for dinner at their house about four years ago, and the father says, you know, Lech Lenz is a communist. I said, what? He says he was being used by the communists. And actually, uh, some things that are, are being published now from the Freedom of Information Act and things like this, all in the communist records, uh, they're, they're being released. It turns out that they think he was. To what extent he was, I mean, we don't know, but uh, he was being used as a tool. They were trying to control it. Maybe, maybe they were trying to control it, thinking we can keep this under you know, our control, then it just got too big and you know, they, they lost control of it. But uh, that kind of saddened me when I heard that. Anyway. Back to solidarity, okay? Um, solidarity is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. See how these, these principles are tying into the idea of the common good, that's why it's so important, okay? That is to say, to the good of all and each individual because we are all responsible for all. Solidarity is a virtue directed par excellence to the common good, is found in a commitment to the good of one's neighbor with the readiness in the gospel sense to lose oneself for the, for the sake of the other 
instead of exploiting him, and to serve him instead of oppressing him for one's own advantage. Okay. Um, that's the compendium, quoting from another social encyclical of John Paul II, Solicitude for of the social things, okay? Solicitudo rei socialis. And um, this principle goes by another name. Um, for example, Pope Pius XI, in his 1931 encyclical on the 40th anniversary of Pope Leo XIII's, he called it social charity. Okay? So both of those terms are interchangeable. I think it's a good way to remember what solidarity is, is social charity. We want to practice charity on a social level between not only individuals, but even between nations. Not to go in and just use peoples and, and their resources uh, or use people and their you know, ability to work in factories for our benefit and our profit. Um, I have a, a quote here. Um, let me see if I. Yeah, this is actually a, an article written uh, back in 2014 by Patrick Buchanan was running for president back in 96, really on the same, uh, the same uh, agenda as, as Trump as far as, you know, bring back jobs to the United States. And uh, uh, the, the title of this article was The Pope and Godless Capitalism. And he was quoting Pope Francis. Um, this is called slave labor. And what Pope Francis was talking about was that um, in, where was it? Oh, Bangladesh, okay, which um, after China is the second largest producer of apparel in the world. Why is that? Well, because uh, uh, US corporations and other corporations, I'm sure Germany, more wealthy nations, uh, they can pay workers $40 a month and in this $40 a month job in Bangladesh, uh, in the eight-story fact garment factory that they worked, uh, well, it collapsed, killing 400 people. Okay. Pope Francis just called the spade a spade. He says, this is slave labor. That's what this was. Okay. Um, he went on to say, not paying a just wage, focusing exclusively on the balance books, financial statements, only looking at personal profit, that goes against God. And uh, Pat Buchanan went on to talk about how uh, previous September, 262 garment workers were, were killed um, in Pakistan. Um, you know, this is you know, viewing people, using them for, uh, for one's economic gain. Okay? Um, so you know, slavery was, was wrong too for this purpose. Okay? It violates the principle of solidarity. We're, we're, we're supposed to look out for the good of people want to assist them, not just use them for their, their labor so we can make a profit off them and pay them a slave wage. Um, now, the theological basis for 
the principle of solidarity or social justice, social charity, okay, is uh, from a Catholic standpoint, the church as the mystical body of Christ, okay. Um, Jesus is the head of the mystical body. We're all members by being baptized, we become parts of his body. And as I quote St. Paul here, 1 Corinthians, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And as Christians, we remember we're all in this together. Solidarity means we're all joined together by reason of our common humanity. We have inherent dignity and value. Okay, that goes to another principle, okay, of the human person made in God's image, redeemed by Christ, destined for heaven. We have a duty and justice to treat others with dignity, respect, and try within our means to assist them in their need. This is rather, uh, it's, it's not just a suggestion, okay? Um, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, the rich man's, you know, his food falls off the table, the dogs gobble it up, and Lazarus is sitting outside his gate, starving. Okay? The rich man ends up in hell, and Lazarus gets to heaven. Jesus, in, in his um, discourse about the separation of the sheep and the goats, okay? um, I was hungry, you, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me to drink. Um, these end up in, in perdition. Well, this, this call to practice social charity is a serious one. And uh, on the bottom paragraph there, I, I quote Pope Benedict XVI in address at a congress sponsored uh, by a group that was celebrating um, Chantessi Busanus, the, uh, the Pope's encyclical of 1991, Pope John Paul II. Okay. Uh, Benedict XVI, in an address given at this congress, linked solidarity to gratuitousness, or free giving. Uh, you know, we're not going to take anything with us to heaven, so you know, it's, it's good to give some stuff away and help other people. Um, and he said, and I quote him here, in order for true justice to exist, it is necessary to add free giving and solidarity. And he went on to quote from his encyclical, uh, Caritas and Veritate, in which he teaches, and I quote him, solidarity is the first and foremost a sense of responsibility on the part of everyone with regard to everyone. It cannot therefore be delegated to the state alone. Okay. So, uh, see this is the, the kind of tension I talked about before, um, and it'll become clearer once I talk about the next principle of subsidiarity. Okay. But uh, people can't just say, well, let the state take care of, you know, the, the people that are in need, the people that are, are uh, in dire circumstances. No, it's our responsibility as well to take care of them, okay? Uh, the, the state isn't going to assume responsibility for everything, and it shouldn't. You know, that's, that's the teaching of the church, part of the church's social teaching. The state has a duty, yeah, to provide a safety network. You know, people have nowhere else to go, okay, the state should supply something. But um, we shouldn't take the view that, oh, well, you know, the state will take care of them. No, and um, 
Well, I'll just, as a, as a side note here, um, what was the movie uh, a few years ago about the, the boxer in the, in the, during the Depression? Cinderella Man. Uh, Cinderella Man, yeah. And who was, who did he play? I'm forgetting the boxer, was heavyweight champion. He was kind of he was down on his luck, and uh, he had to go to to get public welfare, okay? which was really a great indignity. I mean, people didn't like to do that. It's like, hey, I'm not going to go to the state, you know, because what it's really doing is I'm going to everyone and say, give me money through the state. But he he had to do it, and he did it. And then when he made money, you know, through his through his boxing. Uh, he remember he went back and paid back what he got from the state. You know, he said, "Here, I, I have money. When I was in need, I'm paying you back now." Okay. I mean, that mentality is, is a good one. I think you know that you know, I'm not going to depend upon the state or anyone else for my needs. But if I'm in you know just circumstances where you know my family's starving, I have to do something. Okay. Well, today it's almost it's swung to the the opposite. The pendulum is swung to the opposite end of things and they'll say, well, the state has a duty to, to care for me and you know, put me up. No, I'm sorry, uh, no. I mean, there's, a, there's a, uh, a reasonable mean here that you have to achieve, okay? Anyway, um, um, <coughs> as, as this quote uh, goes on to say, um, while in the past it was possible to argue that Justice had to come um, first, and gratuitousness could complement it afterwards. Today, one must say that without gratuitousness, there can be no justice in the first place. Um, charity and truth requires that shape and structure be given to those types of economic initiatives with, without rejecting profit, aim at a higher goal than the mere logic of exchange of equivalence as profit as an end in itself. Um, and I think that applies to, you know, going in and, okay, we're gonna build a garment factory, um, and, um, oh gee, because the government there doesn't have the same standards as we in the United States do, uh, that we, our workers work for over, over decades, you know, for proper health care and good working conditions, we'll just, know, build a shack and the workers work there, and all oh, if it collapses, you know, who cares, you know. No, can't do that, okay, can't do that. It's not just profit, it's not just making money. Uh, that can't be the, the, the primary motive. Uh, and, I, and I don't think most employers view things that way, but there is this tension between, you know, the, the, the capitalists and, and the workers, you know. Um, anyway, I, I cite a corollary to uh, solidarity or social charity. And it's something that Pope John Paul II enunciated in, in his encyclical, which uh, you have, which Justin Sanders, the prefer preferential love or option for the poor. And the principle of the universal destination of goods requires that poor, the marginalized, and in all cases those whose living conditions interfere with their proper growth should be the focus of particular concern. 
And we just have to be careful of the word poor, however, because that, that word is thrown around. Okay? Just because you have less than, than I doesn't mean that you're poor. I mean, it's, you know, everything is relative in this sense. Okay? Well, I'm poor because I'm not, you know, I don't have a yacht. And, uh, you know, I only have a, a car. And you have three cars and a boat. Well, that isn't poor. I mean, what we're talking about here is people destitute, okay? people really in need. And uh, we have to keep that in mind when we're, we're talking about you know, giving assistance to those in need. And uh, well, Pope John Paul II teaches that um, the more individuals in a society are defenseless, within a given society, the more they require the care and concern of others, in particular, the intervention of government authority. So, uh, and he also defines this as a special form of primacy in the exercise of Christian charity. Basically, we must first care for the poor before others in social charity and solidarity. And, um, and those are individuals who are, you know, defenseless, they, they really need our help, they're destitute, not just who have less goods than us, and um, um, you know, that, that could give themselves the, the label, I'm poor. Well, no, uh, they must be truly you know, poor in the sense of, of uh, needing a desperation you know, for, for assistance. Okay? Um, they have no place else to turn I mean, the state should come in and assist them, but also we should do likewise and and look out for them and want to help them. Okay, and I think this is why we have you know the you know food, uh, the, the shelters at night, you know the inns program that they take people in. We have the, you know the Shalom Center. We have uh, you know people want people are are generous. I think you know they, they want to give and they want to help people out who are who are you know, in need, and uh, to help them pull themselves up, you know, out of, out of their destitute situations, you know. This is, this is all good and, and worthy of, of our attention, and, and we should uh, have an option for them, if we have an option, you know, to, to spend our resources to assist them, okay. Now, uh, that principle of, you know, do one more principle and we'll take a little break here, okay? That principle of solidarity, uh, there's another one that, that really complements it, okay? And it's subsidiarity. So on the one hand, you have okay, um, solidarity and, and you know, we have to have concern for those who are destitute and the state even has to come in and help out, okay? But then there's the principle of subsidiarity. And this is extremely important as well. And it's basically this. Uh, well, if, if there is a corporation and the corporation has what we call a, a subsidiary, I, I think everyone understands that, right? It's a subsidiary of a, of a you know, big corporation. Why do companies, a, a huge corporation, okay, why do they have subsidiaries? What's the purpose? More efficient, that's it. It is more efficient to have things run on a more local level okay, than everything centrally planned. Okay. 
Now, look at our, our government in these United States. We have local community governments. Okay? We have the dog catcher, we have the mayor, we have, you know, we have a state government okay, that sees over you know, more you know, bigger things than we have a federal government. And this is the, the, the uh, principle of subsidiarity in practice. It's inefficient to have everything centrally planned. That's another reason why uh, you know, the socialist state, especially like in, in the communist countries, failed. You know, Russia would come out with these five-year plans every year and you know, try to micromanage everything from Moscow. You can't do this. It is inefficient. And it's inefficient to have the federal government running everything. This is why we have uh, state governments, why we have local governments. It's like, hey, get out of here, federal government. We don't want you in every aspect of our lives, even though they're probably listening in right now, the NSA talking phone. <laughs> Whatever I'm saying here, right? Yeah. Don't bring your phone in the confession for yeah. that reason. Well, that's right. I shouldn't do that. I, I got it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I just read today, um, I was reading my newest issue of Chronicles magazine. It's one of my favorite magazines. Uh, and one of the writers in there, he was... In the one hand, he says, I, I applaud, you know, Snowden, or was it Eric Snowden, or was it, was it Eric? Eric, yeah. Eric, okay. And I guess they made a movie out of it, you know. He says, I applaud him in one sentence for, like, blowing the whistle on, on them. But he says, on the other hand, you know, he, he kind of tipped off all of our enemies by doing this, because now they, they know that they're being, you know, watched, and they're, they're using other means to get around this. So it's, it is a threat to our... our uh, Security. I mean, it's, there's a balance there, but you know, I don't like the idea of you know, um, all of my uh, phone conversations and emails are being you know reviewed. Mm. No, that's smacks uh, Big Brother too much. Anyway, um, <clears throat> the principle of, of subsidiarity. If a smaller unit in an organization, a subsidiary, can fulfill an obligation. The larger unit in that organization should not take over this responsibility. Allowing the smaller unit to do so is more efficient, productive. There's less waste. Okay? We read about the waste, you know, with with um, you know welfare and, and you know the, the socialized medicine which we have now. And people they play the system. I mean, they're just you know there's there's so much graft and, and money lost. Okay, most Western governments. Are set up in this way, you know, subsidiarity, the US, federal, state, city, local government bodies, and uh, an era of you know, communism, socialism, the welfare state, is everything is centrally planned, inefficiency, waste results. Okay? And this is from Shantesa Musanos, okay, John Paul II, a loss of human energies and an inordinate increase of public agencies, which are dominated more by bureaucratic ways of thinking than by concern for serving their clients and which are accompanied by an enormous increase in spending, okay? This is in the circle. This is wrong, okay, to do this. And we see this, I mean, with the growth of the federal government. It's like a, this uh, a leviathan. 
And um, in his 1931 encyclical, uh, by Ano, this is on the 40th anniversary of Rerum Devarum, Pope Pius XI, defines subsidiarity. I put it in bold because it's really important. Just as it is gravely wrong to take from individuals what they can accomplish by their own initiative and industry and give it to the community, so it is also an injustice at the same time, and at the same time, a grave evil and disturbance of the right order to assign to a greater and higher association what lesser and subordinate organizations can do. For every social activity ought to, of its very nature, to furnish help to the members of the body social and never destroy and absorb them. And. Uh, the federal government is just like this big snowball that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. and want to intrude into our lives more and more. That's one reason that I think Trump is, has gained popularity, because he's been against this. And all these people, so many people out there know this. It's like, you know, government, get out of our lives, okay? And um, it's really, it's, it's a grave injustice to do this. But that's what the Pope is saying. This is gravely wrong, seriously wrong, to have what, what a smaller organization or body can do and have it subsumed by, by a larger one. Okay? No, it's inefficient, it's wasteful, and it's, it can be uh, you know, very uh, totalitarian. Okay? So, um, and then I quote the compendium there. On the basis of this principle, all societies of a superior order must adopt attitudes of help, subsiduum, um, therefore of support promotion development with respect to lower order societies. Um, and I just give the practical playing out of these two principles of solidarity and subsidiary, okay? Democrats tend to to stress the preferential option to the poor, want taxation, government programs to assist the poor, and to neglect the principle of, of subsidiarity. That's their emphasis. Okay. More and more government programs do everything for us, okay? And the Republicans and Libertarians do the opposite. They want less taxes with little or no intervention from government, expect the free market to provide for everyone. Well, that's wrong too. You can't you can't go to the you can't go to those extremes. Okay? There's a, a happy medium here, and the political system has to play out and and you know achieve that or try to strive for it. Okay, um, but there there is this tension, and um, you know. I don't know if people realize this uh, with this this background knowledge that I've just given. Okay, this is kind of what's what's playing out uh, on on well, it, it, this this has been playing out for for just decades and decades uh, in regard to you know government. You know how much government should be involved in in our lives and and um, you know, more and more federal programs. No, we don't need more and more federal programs. I mean the 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 idea of, of local communities caring for their own is, is the best because 
and there's less waste, there's, there's more concern on a human level rather than some bureaucrat. I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood where we knew everyone in the neighborhood. If one kid was doing something bad, the mother would you know, see the kid, follow the other mother. I mean, and, and people cared for one another. You know, if someone was in bad straits, you, you go help them out. You know, farmers do this uh, in farming communities. You know, like someone has, you know, their, their barn burns down, you know, they go and, and help, you know, build, build another barn. And to have that, that you know, personal contact and, uh, and charity on an individual level taken away and just subsumed by the government, it's not good. Um, how that plays out in the big cities is a little more difficult, though. I mean, you just have to you know, use our reason. What the church gives here are, are the, the basic principles. The church isn't giving specific programs to adopt. The church sets out these principles and says, okay, now you know, it's up to you, the, you know, the faithful, and others to put these into practice. So how this plays out in the political sphere uh, will depend upon you know, the people involved and, and their knowledge and their commitment and, and really their, their personal moralities, you know, I quoted you know, before. Um, we need good, moral, uh, upright people in, in government to, to uh, to make the thing work for the common good. But um, um, the, uh, the idea of, of the government just taking over everything is, is something that's gravely wrong, and we, we have to oppose it. Okay. Father, would you, you said that it's, kind of, it's more difficult for larger organizations such as cities, you know, establishing a subsidiary, but the neighborhoods are such, and... and they they, they can be, they and, can and be, but I look at my neighborhood, I mean, people are Section 8 housing, they're in and out in six months, so they have, there's no even cohesiveness there. Go ahead. But, I, but the, on the other hand, back in the 40s and 50s, you know, you had these neighborhoods that were, you know, like, mostly Italian, mostly yeah. uh, Russian or Swedish or whatever, and they, they sort of looked after their own. They did. And that's where that works. It can, yeah. Uh, it's, it's better for, in that sense. But, but not, you know, even, even that, I mean, all the Italians moved out of Columbus Park area because they made more money and uh, they went and bought, you know, nicer homes, you know, out from their way. Um, you know, how you, how you care for individuals in dire need in a local community. I mean, you know, churches can get together and do this. I mean, I have my own ideas. Did I share this with you last week about? Um, I shared this with someone. I forget who it was. Um, one of the women at, at uh, the uh, our spaghetti dinner last week. Because, you know, things are just so inefficient with, with the federal government running everything, uh, even though they channel money through the state governments and local governments and counties and things like this. For example, I mean, if you're a, a woman who, who you know, 
as a child out of wedlock, you can get your own apartment, right? Did I mention this last week? No, you, okay. you can get your own apartment, and uh, you know, the, the, the guy who fought the child was supposed to come up with some money to assist, but uh, you know, what happens is, practically speaking, one guy will, will be a father for uh, you know, maybe a few women, maybe more than a few. I read in the Kenosha paper when a judge was berating a guy because he, he had 25 children from, I think, uh, I don't know how many women, you know, the upper teens. And you know, you can just go and spend a night at, at these different gals' homes and their apartments and the government's you know paying for all this and and he's fathering little children and this is this is craziness okay I and mean, what I would do I'm gonna give a homily on this someday okay I put a couple of good women in charge of you know get a get a big like, building and these young gals with their children would live in dormitories with beds okay they have to be in at a certain time no visitation by guys we'll help you give you you know good good uh, Know, instruction how to care for your children and uh, uh, I'm sure the the out of wedlock pregnancies would just drop because you know, it's like the government's not going to pay for this we're not going to get our own apartments we're going to have to live yeah we'll, we'll give you you know food and, and, and a roof over your head but this is your how you're going to live in a dormitory style with your babies okay and we'll, we'll feed you and, and help you to get back on your feet uh, well they're not going to like that one bit, okay. giving them an apartment. I mean, could you see some someone knocking on your door and saying, "Will you give me like a couple hundred dollars to, to, for my rent?" You know, I'm a single mom, and you know, I'm my boyfriend's coming over tonight, and I'd like to you know rent this apartment. So you get lost. Okay? But our government's doing this, and the guys are you know this promotes your responsibility because the guys are you know they're not working, and you know, I put these guys out to work have them fixing the streets, I'd have them doing something. And um, it just, you know, Daniel, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan wasn't a you know, big conservative. He called this back in, I think it was 65, when Johnson initiated his Great Society program. He said, you're going to create a society of dependence, and this is going to grow and, and, and be a big, big problem. It'll, you'll have more people dependent upon the state, and that's what's happening. Okay? He saw this coming. I think anyone with with brains can, can see this. This is just the system is bad. And now, what do you do to get out of it? Okay? I, I voiced my opinion. I was, I could think of some things you could do to, to you know, counter this and and really provide a disincentive for for the immorality. I mean, that's part of it. Is is, is this and and the the, the wastefulness and. Uh, and, and come on, the folks in my neighborhood, I, I, I feel for them. But you know, I see these guys walking down the street. Everyone's got a cell phone. Okay. Mm -hmm. Come on. This is this is they're not really too poor in my opinion. If you're you know you're talking on your cell phone and, and half of them are yelling all the time, you know, and cussing and they're swearing and out they're they're, they're angry at someone, you know, they're they're in a conversation with them. I just think, hey, you know, I'm sorry, who's footing the bill for all this? You know, we are. You know, I mean, it's the system is bound to collapse, and you can't go on like this. So, uh, but it, it doesn't make good sense to have the government take over everything. 
you need some good people to sit down and try to figure out you know, ways to, to you know, help those who are really destitute, but on the, other, on the other hand, not encourage that type of irresponsible activity. Roundtable discussion sometimes, mm -hmm. and get ideas, and maybe write to our representatives. And see well, what they say. Does that same principle apply? Would you say to drug addicts and alcoholics? That I mean, they're well. I, you know, I mean, those things are all debatable. I mean, people people need help. Uh, you know, I know heroin addiction is just horrendous. I mean, oh. you know, how many people die in this county from heroin addiction? That's it's horrible. But a lot of these people are, are young people with a lot of expendable income. Not a lot of expendable income. Right. They, they, you know, they, they're able to, you know, buy the drugs, buy the, you know. But that, that was first started out by a, a world profit when uh, the drug companies were trying to get into the opioid uh, medication. And they said that uh, it was only 1% was uh, the rate of the addiction. You know, using this medication, and then people got into the habit of using it to the point of becoming addicted to that, and then it became more expensive, and you ended up with heroin as the uh, outlying cause. Yeah, I don't know what percentage of these people are addicted or you know were on drugs to help them, and now just fell into it by by that reason. I'm not sure. But uh, the, and I know so I know some of them are just you know they're, they're right. on the party scene, and this is you know just to get a different high they're doing this. Sure. But, but there was also a big push by the drug companies at one time to um, uh, sell opioid medicines, and um, they said the addiction rate was extremely low. It was a lot higher than what was portrayed. Well, I'm going to take a break just for a couple of minutes here because I would like to say I'm already at E15, um, but I'll finish up with um, workers' rights. Okay. And then a proposal to do the next class, you know, continue on with going beyond the basic principles. Father Campbell, yes. have you seen that um, movie that was on EWTN, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, about South I don't have children. Oh, okay. Okay, it was very good. About what? Um, Saul Alinsky and, uh... Oh, Saul Alinsky. Yeah, okay. I, Chicago and... He dedicated his book to Satan. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it was very interesting. Satan. The father of the community organizers. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Who's, who's winning? Indians. Indians. It's the bottom of the third, though. Two, two to zero. Indians. It sounds like you have hope. I, oh, yeah, I kind of hope. I kind of hope for them. I'm not particularly a fan, but they've been wanting this for how long? I don't know. That's All my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was there in 69. I was there in 94. I watched them. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, I kind of have a conflict about that. Is it frivolous to pray for them to win? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. People are so emotional about it.
or for anything, you know, that's not just bargaining, okay? So, um, like the people in Bangladesh, okay? you dangle, you know, a few, a few pennies before them, and, uh, oh, this is just because they agree to it. No, it's not just. Um, now, number seven, other rights of workers, which Pope Leo the Thirteenth back in 1891 outlined, okay? A day of rest, worship God, spend time with family. Because, you know, the workers, people were working seven days a week. Uh, workmen's compensation, if the worker should be injured, not able to work for a time. Some type of unemployment insurance, someone doesn't suffer while out of work, uh, the right to safe working conditions, reasonable working hours. You know, in, in the U.S., we're very, we have this more of this Protestant work ethic. Okay? I guess in Europe, people work a lot less, don't they? Mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. sure. mm -hmm. no, yeah, they do. We, 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 The right to, this is kind of the, the most, one of the most important of, of these principles and rights, a just wage or a family wage. I wish a man can support his family so the wife and children do not have to work. So some money can be put into savings, unjustly low wages forces wives into the workplace. This in turn results in couples being less willing to have more children of not being able to support them using sinful means like contraception, sterilization, or turning to abortion to prevent new life. Um, contrary to God's will, be fruitful and multiply. Build the earth and subdue it. Okay? Um, and this is this is seen as played out in, in, in history. There are all kinds of statistics which which support this. I mean that people are afraid, you know, they're, they're afraid to have children if they're, if they're not getting you know, a wage to, to, you know, to support themselves. Um, I, I note here that one of the sins that cries out to heaven is defrauding a worker of his wages. I quote Deuteronomy there, you shall not defraud a poor and needy hired servant, otherwise he will cry out to the Lord against you. And then James in the New Testament the wages you have withheld from workers are crying aloud and have reached the ears of the Lord. You can look at the Catechism, 1867. It lists defrauding a worker of his or her wages as one of the sins that cries out to heaven. And in his 1981 encyclical, The War of Exertions on Human Work, okay, St. John Paul II teaches that in the final analysis, I put it in bold, the entire social order depends upon a just wage hired, paid to, to a worker. Okay. These are his words, okay. The justice of a socioeconomic system and, in each case, its just functioning deserve in the final analysis to be evaluated by the way in which each man's work is properly remunerated in the system. And here we return once more to the first principle of the whole ethical and social order, namely the principle of the common use of goods. That's the universal disposition of goods. Okay? In every system, regardless of the fundamental relationships within it, between capital and labor, wages, that is to say, remuneration for work, 
are still a practical means whereby the vast majority of people can have access to those goods which are intended for the common use. In other words, you know, if goods are supposed to be you know, for everyone, you can't get the goods if you're not being paid a just wage. So in order to fulfill that, that basic uh, principle okay, of justice, you've got to pay just wage. And uh, he says both goods of nature and manufactured goods. Goods of nature meaning, for example, leisure. And if you're having your work you know, 14 hours a day and all you're doing is going home and going to sleep, okay, you're not, you know, that's, that's not in existence. Both, and not that manufactured goods are going to provide happiness, but you know they they provide uh, you know some comfort to life, some some you know, enjoyment. Um, both kinds of goods become accessible to the worker through the wage he receives as remuneration for his work. Hence, in each case, a just wage is the concrete means of verifying the justice of the whole socioeconomic system. And in any case, of checking that it is functioning justly. It's not only the means of checking, but it is a particularly important one, in a sense, the key means. This means checking, this means of checking concerns above all the family. Just remuneration for the work of an adult who was responsible for for a family means remuneration, which will suffice for establishing, properly maintaining a family, providing security for its future, um, given either through what is called the family wage, salary to the head of the family for his work sufficient for the needs of the family, without the other spouse having to take gainful employment outside the home, okay, or other social measures such as family allowances and grants to or grants to mothers devoting themselves exclusively to their families. Okay. This is another way to, where the state could pay mothers to stay home. This is good. You're, so they don't have to go out and work and then put stress on the whole family and then you don't want to have you know, other children. I mean, you, if you, you um, provide some type of, of allowances for mothers, uh, this has been done. I don't think it's been done here in the United States, but it's been done in Europe. Um, and John Paul says, experience confirms that there must be a social reevaluation of the mother's role, of the toil connected with it, the need that children have for care, love, and affection, in order that they may develop into morally responsible, religiously mature, psychologically stable persons. It will redound to the credit of society to make possible for the mother, without inhibiting her freedom, without psychological, practical discrimination, penalizing her compared with other women, to devote herself to taking care of children, educating them with their needs. Uh, that's why I always like to, I don't like to say uh, to mothers, oh, do you work? If she's working in the home, I say, this is your work. This is the most glorious work. What is of more value, going out and Making a big sale, you know, in business or winning a legal case or or whatever, or forming and educating a child in love. The scale of values, it's 
informing and educating children. That's, that's a much higher value. That's why the, to promote the common good of, of children and their education, okay, it's to the idea of, of giving women a, a mother's allowance for doing this, this great work makes great sense. That's why the Pope included it in his encyclical. Okay. Um, I'm going to end there, but I'll, I'll put out a just a, an idea. Okay. Uh, I've been reading through um, Alan Carlson's book. Alan Carlson um, that what caused me to read through his book, he was sitting on my shelf for more than two decades. And I had never really sat down and gone through it. You know, I just glanced at it. Um, he wrote an article in um, Chronicles Magazine uh, the month of October. In fact, it's the front page of the story, the Stork Theory. Um, anyway, he, what he talks about here, it's interesting. This kind of a social economic analysis of the past um, hundred and some years since the Industrial Revolution. Okay. Um, I'll just quote him because the lines that I outlined here, he just expounds in his book. It was a, it's really a masterful work. He did a lot of research on it. Okay. He, he says that uh, industrial capitalism, we talked about that in the last class, how you know, it was this big shift in, in society. It has famously produced a vast trove of material goods. Yes, we have all these material goods. Uh, yet, uh, these gains came at a great social price. The liberal economy severed the place of work from the place of residence. Until that economy emerged, the industrial economy, it had been normal, even natural, for home and work to coexist in unity. It had the effect of underscoring the economic foundation of marital and family relations. Each home, you think of the farm or, or the, um, you know, the uh, someone had a trade working out of their home. Okay. Each home was a, was a productive as well as a consuming place filled with an array of tasks involving and necessitating husband and wife, parents, children, all working together. Okay. On the small farm, the craftsman shop, offering some economic assets at an early age, um, pardon me, offspring become economic assets at an early age, are welcomed as such. You have more children you know, to the farm and, or the, the trade, whatever, okay. The factory system severed these bonds. Okay. Viewed from a different angle, the liberal economy grew as it consumed the home economy. Industrial process grows and increases profits as it takes tasks once done by families or small communities and reorganizes them according to a mechanical model. We started out with clothes making, and some people like that, okay, but then it got to other things too. Um, in this book, he um, 
devotes chapters to different topics. And, um, well, one of the, the topics that he discusses, um, it's chapter two actually, <clears throat> um, the family wage experiment. And um, he goes through a, a history uh, which links with what uh, the popes have taught about paying a family wage or a just wage, okay? Uh, it's fascinating to see how this played out throughout the, the 20th century, okay? You had governments, you know, mandating specific wages and encouraging uh, not equal pay for equal work, but uh, more pay for, for a man with a family and less pay for someone who was single, especially women, okay? It was interesting. You know, he, he put this, this is a good, was a good study in um, in how this thing played out in the in the 20th century. Um, his book, which it's still I think worth reading, uh, I got online today and saw that there are uh, you can you can get there were in one site 18 copies of this available for three dollars or less, and another. 20 available for uh, you pay more money, okay? Uh, I think it'd be, it would be uh, maybe interesting to, um, to do a, a book study on this, um, to read through it. Um, the title of the book is From Cottage to Workstation. And it's, it's 20, it was written in 93, so it's 23 years old. There are some more statistics that have come out more recently, uh, which maybe need updating. But I don't know if anyone would be would be interested in exploring um, some of the things he he says here. Is um, um, he looks at America primarily, and. Um, How laws affected marriage, that's chapter one, but especially chapter two, the family wage experiment, okay? If some people may not care to read, it's, it's a, kind of a long chapter. What I could do is, um, um, after a couple of weeks, kind of resume a class like this and just deal with the idea of, of the just wage because uh, it's such an important aspect of, of Church's social justice teaching, as John Paul II says, if you want to gauge whether the whole socio-economic system is operating, functioning justly, uh, look at the wages people are being paid. That's going to tell you. That's how important this is. And what he does in chapter two is go through. great history of, of how this idea played out. Uh, the popes weren't the only ones speaking about this. Okay? There were governments in, in, in the United States, state governments, the federal government here, governments in Europe. They were trying to put something like this into practice. It was it's kind of fascinating. Uh, I could have you know, a class or two just to talk about wages 
and uh, the just wage and kind of flesh this out because this is easy enough where I, I kind of highlighted pages and I could maybe put something on the PowerPoint if I get my PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> or else just have, have handouts for people to uh, you know, summarize what he said here and then provide some, some more, a more modern, updated uh, presentation too over the past 20 some years because this book was written in 93. Some more has happened since then, uh, especially um, the outsourcing of, of industry. It's really taken off, you know, since '93, uh, as you probably know. China wasn't our the world's manufacturer of, of goods back then; it, it is today. But would anyone be interested in, in following up on sure. this? I could sure. put something in the bulletin and, and have another class or two. And um, if you want to get the book. I'll give you the title. It's called From Cottage to Workstation. And uh, it's, it's by Alan, A-L-L-A-N, Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N. I mean, like I said, in one website, I, f I found 18 copies for like three bucks or less. It's, it's worth it to just, if you're going to read one chapter, be worth paying that much. You probably have to pay more for shipping than anything else. But Alan Carlson is um, he, he is the head of um, um, he's in Rockford, Illinois, and he used to be I think part of the Rockford Institute. Uh, but he, he's he's got some I think it's the Rockford Family Institute. He's he's head of or he used to be. Um, anyway, it's uh, it's really a good good work. So I could, I could continue this discussion and just uh, go more in depth on, on the idea of wages and, and kind of a historical study of it in, in another class or two, which I think would be, I found it fascinating reading through you know, his, his book, which I, like I said, been sitting on my shelf for a long time. And I, I look at it just, you know, glanced through it, but I, I really sat down and read it know, intensely uh, over the past few days, and it was, it was worth reading. So I'll just put something in the bulletin, and I think word will get out, okay, to others of uh, I know next Thursday, or next, yeah, next Tuesday is the third, I'm not sure how many days will be open in November with, uh, I have to look at my schedule, but I'll try to do it next year. Try to get two more two more Tuesdays okay. So we'll um, we'll end with the name of the Father, the Son, and the Son. Father, we give thanks for many blessings you bestow upon us, especially upon our nation, the natural resources and the freedoms that we have enjoyed here. We ask that you strengthen us with your grace to put into practice these principles we have learned in our own lives and to communicate uh, the 
these truths to others in order that we may be your instruments in promoting the common good of all in our community, our nation, and the world. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.